This podcast is a part of the Garnet Media Group Podcast Network. Garnet Media Group is a partnership between student-run media outlets at the University of South Carolina. Find out more about Garnet Media Group's podcast and other student work on garnetmedia.org. So hello everyone and welcome to another episode of 1801 Live. My name is Hannah White and I have the honor to host this podcast. But today we have a really cool topic that we are going to discuss. It's environmental justice and sustainability. So with me, I actually have a few amazing um, guests all the way from established professionals to very passionate student leaders just to talk about this topic. And so without further ado, I would like for everyone to introduce themselves and of course, we can start with Claire Windsor. Hi, um, as you said, my name is Claire. Um, I am a junior studying geography and global studies. Um, yes, I'm just an undergraduate student here. Um, I'm, I'm representing student government um, as the chair for the sustainability committee. And I also um, work within the office of sustainability. Um, so yeah, that's just my background. And I'm excited to, to be here as a student voice as well. Perfect. And then next we can have Mackenzie? Yeah. Hi, I'm Mackenzie. I am a senior studying environmental studies with a uh, minor in business administration. So a lot of my interests are towards um, business sustainability. And um, something that I'm representing is um, student government. So I'm the secretary of sustainability for student government, as well as um, I'm an intern in the Department of Commerce for South Carolina, and I work in recycling market development. So um, I work a lot with connecting businesses around the state with recyclers and um, boosting that industry right here in South Carolina. Perfect. And then we can just do the popcorn method and you can just choose and we'll introduce everyone. Yeah. Um, I will choose Dr. Harrison. You want to go? Hi, I'm uh, Connor Harrison. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Geography in the School of Earth, Ocean, and Environment. Um, and I teach uh, classes on sort of environmental policy. Uh, I teach classes on energy and sustainability and a lot of different areas like that. So thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. And uh, I'll have uh, Dr. Barr go next. Hey, so I'm Monica Barra, and I'm an assistant professor in the School of the Earth, Ocean, and Environment and Department of Anthropology, as well as an affiliate in African American Studies here at USC. And I am a cultural anthropologist by training, and I teach courses on environmental racism and justice, questions around political ecology and race, and anthropology of North America. And I guess next, uh, Professor Gutkowski, you want to go? Thank you. Um, my name is Andrew Gutkowski. I am a uh, recent PhD from the University of South Carolina. I just graduated uh, earlier this year in May. Um, I'm a historian by trade, uh, my training, and my research looks at the history of environmental inequality, environmental racism in various parts of the uh, US South. Um, right now, I'm a teaching fellow here uh, with the Bridge Humanities uh, program, where I teach courses on social justice and uh, social advocacy. Perfect. And then last but not least, Dr. Teresa. Yeah, I'm, hi, I'm Teresa. I'm a master's student um, at the School of Earth, Ocean, and Environment, um, and I'm pursuing my master's in Earth and Environmental Resources management. Um, and my master's research project is looking at 
these kinds of topics of like race, power, and coastal climate change, specifically in South Carolina. Perfect. So as you all can tell, we have very influential figures here that are going to, are willing to share their research topics and just a little bit of knowledge about environmental justice. I will be honest, um, when Claire and Mackenzie came to me about this topic, I was so excited because I was not fully aware of all that it encompassed. I actually am minoring in African-American studies and so very passionate about um, African-American history and just the study of the culture, but did not always connect the intersectionality between even social justice and environmental justice or sustainability. And so just going around, anyone can come off of mute to share their story, but can we go a little bit further into the research? I know, for example, um, Dr. Barr and Dr. Gostowski, you guys talked about social justice and specifically the intersectionality between the two subjects within your research. And so could you expand a little bit more about exactly what that entails? Well, I mean, I guess I can just start it off here, um, Hannah. And I think it's great that you all are kind of doing this topic for this podcast. It's so important. I think precisely because a lot of people don't, when they think about environmentalism or sustainability or all these kinds of things, they typically don't think about questions around social justice, let alone kind of histories of civil rights and racism, especially in the U.S., but even globally. Uh, so I'm glad we're kind of making some space um, to talk about that. And it's, it's interesting, actually, I want to, I feel like I've already gotten a chance to hear more about Professor Gukowski's work because he, he came to my course last week and talked a bit about his work, both here in South Carolina and in the South. Um, but what I will say, at least, you know, from my, my interest in the field came predominantly from wanting to understand more about how um, forms of, of racism and economic inequality in the U.S. are produced kind of through, through the environment, right, and decisions about how we manage the environment and how people live with that. So that brought me to doing um, pretty extensive research along the Gulf Coast, um, actually the area that was just in the direct pathway of <laughs> Hurricane uh, Theta just yesterday. Um, you know, so for me, the questions around equity and justice and, and race were always the thing that kind of pulled me towards questions about the environment as opposed to the other way around. And, you know, I think everybody comes at this from different angles. So I'm sure everyone else in here has a different uh, way into the topic, but, but that's really what intrigued me, you know, is kind of like, okay, how can I look at these environmental problems as a way to understand something about our society um, more broadly? So I'll, I'll leave it at that. That is amazing. And from your um, experiences and research, how exactly or what are tangible um, ways or actions that you've seen the intersectionality between the two? I mean, I guess there's questions of, you know, around solutions, right? So kind of that end of things, but at least kind of where I've seen pretty palpable intersections around that. Um, and a lot of my work focuses on kind of climate change type work. So, you know, the simplest, one of the, the ways into that was to really think about whose voices are represented in decision-making processes about who is inside or outside a levy, right? Or what community, you know, typically when a lot of municipalities or states are making decisions about where to invest limited resources in, in flood protection, for example, 
they'll often do these kinds of cost benefit analyses that typically look at assets and property value, which, you know, if we know anything about the history of, of, of racial and class inequality in, in the U.S., basically kind of guarantees that land owned or, or places inhabited by people of color and people from, you know, working class, poor working class communities automatically don't get valued as much, literally, when you crunch the numbers, um, which means that their voices aren't often integrated, let alone the kind of priorities of protecting their homes and lands. Um, so that's like, for me, what a kind of a nice kind of concrete way that I see that in my work, especially when it comes to, to making decisions around climate change planning. That's awesome. And I know that I mentioned Dr. Gutowski as well, but also would love to get um, some other student leader input as far as um, I know that you all were the individuals who recommended um, these professionals to come onto the uh, podcast to talk about their research. But specifically as a student, how do you see us having an impact or even contributing to this overall um, issue? I guess I'll go and then I'll let um, the other people talk about their research as well. But um, just as a from a student's perspective as well, um, especially within the Office of Sustainability, we've made um, one of our um, priorities really to expand kind of our reach and definition of what environmentalism means and also what sustainability means. I think we mostly get caught. Um, we have a great reach with environmental studies students as well, um, of course, really, because that is just kind of who we um, always seem to attract, but I think we've tried to expand kind of who is in, um, included within the Sustainable Carolina Leadership Program and how we can make that more attainable for other um, student leaders on campus. Um, and so we want to continue to bring awareness to these subjects as well. Something that I can say that has um, been very um, successful so far is through our social media page, um, our marketing um, coordinator Ken Patterson has done a phenomenal job in using the power of social media through the Office of Sustainability and really marketing all of the um, leaders within different communities who are bringing light to environmental justice. So recently this week, she's been publishing all the information about here are the podcasts, here are the, the uh, social media influencers that you should follow um, that are related to indigenous um, environmental justice movements, or um, even today promoting businesses that we can support that have sustainable practices and are also owned by people of color. So really just kind of showing the different ways that we can promote this as students, um, with it, as an individual, and then just continue to bring awareness to the subject. And that was really the whole purpose of bringing everyone here together um, tonight and just continuing this conversation and building momentum for it as a whole is something that I think at least students can do. Yeah, I think it is really important for students to think a lot about the environment in different ways because you can often think about, you know, environmentalism as, you know, climate change, all the like tangible, visible things we see daily, but just to think about your environment as USC, how did we get here? How did um, like my privilege allow me to be here because a lot of it was, for example, like the displacement of the Ward 1 district that's how so many of our camp buildings on campus happened. So how did I arrive here with all these beautiful buildings? It wasn't just as easy as that. It was at the expense of a lot of people of color that were displaced for a lot of, you know, environmentally 
injustice like reasons. So um, I think it's really important to think about that um, as a student and to not um, to just remember where we came from in the history and to, you know, it didn't just happen like that. It happened at the expense of a lot of people. I'm glad that you bring that up. I actually had an opportunity to create an African-American history tour and just learning about the history specifically of how the university became desegregated. And so oftentimes we just hear about the three um, black individuals or students in 1963 that came to desegregate the university. But going a century back, we actually had a normal school, which was Rutledge College that um, allowed black students to be able to become teachers. And so actually having black students at one point in the environment, then displacing them by shutting down the university, opening back up as an all-white agricultural college, to then a century later becoming officially desegregated by those three individuals. So even just you making that connection allowed me to even think of all of the things that I have learned or the history that I have learned and seeing, oh, I understand how environmental injustice is play plays a role within every aspect, not just having recycled bins or in the classrooms or, you know, um, even though it is very important or as well as climate change. I feel like a lot of people, when they think of sustainability, the first thing that comes to their head, Flint, Michigan, you know, and so although those things are very important, um, it's great to see the intersectionality of how it really does play a part in every um, aspect of life. But I would love to hear more about the research of um, other guests on the episode. So if you have um, if you can possibly share a little bit more about your research. I know that I left off with Dr. Gutowski, so if you could please. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, as a historian, um, I'm very interested in how um, patterns of environmental injustice, environmental racism form over time, historically speaking. Um, so my research looks at how uh, the, the roles of the uh, geographic legacies of slavery and disenfranchisement, Jim Crow, and contributing to uneven distributions of pollution and environmental risk, environmental hazards in different parts uh, of the South. Um, uh, so for example, I look at the, um, the history of the uh, Arkwright neighborhood on the South side of Spartanburg um, which back in 2000 was home to, um, I believe, two or three Superfund sites, multiple brownfields. And I tried to kind of comb back through the census records and using oral histories to unpack and kind of explain how that geographic formation came to be in the first place. And I think history can be an invaluable tool in this sense for achieving environmental justice because uh, it, it helps validate claims of environmental racism and environmental injustice uh, and often environmental policy making uh, specifically when it comes to cleaning up these these sites these hazards um, involve questions of history of the past and understanding who to hold responsible for these uh, public health crises for environmental injustice um, so like in the case of Spartanburg, for example, uh, when the community there began to kind of become active around these sites there, uh, one of them was a municipal landfill that was sited 
into um, the African-American community there, predominantly because they were kind of invisible and sort of historically been disenfranchised as kind of a convenient, kind of the path of least resistance is the term that's usually used. Um, and when the community began to kind of organize, the city for several years denied that that site had, was even there, had even been constructed in the first place. And so I think history has a kind of, um, can be used as kind of a social justice sort of um, resource in this sense. So that's that's the thing that kind of motivated me uh, as a historian to come interested in this issue. Um, and it's, it's a topic that doesn't normally have um, much like in-depth kind of discussion or conversation from historians in general. Yeah, and I know that overall, um, we talked about everyone's specific passions or categories like McKenzie, you talk about sustainability, environmental justice and commerce, but even you mentioning um, the his historic aspect of environmental justice and your research specifically in Spartanburg. I wonder what are you guys' thoughts about exactly who is to blame or who where does the issue rely in as far as is it a governmental issue where it needs to be tackled based on just through policy is it also a commerce issue is it both tied together is it an individual um issue that has been generational how can we combat this uh, i can I, i'll speak up uh, um <laughs> i'll go first um I, I think that you know it's a little bit of all those things right and it's thinking about how how you know our governmental systems are linked into our systems of commerce right we don't have to look very far to see how the influence of of our uh you know major industries um play into the way that we regulate industry right um you know you don't have to look you know the examples are sort of rampant one if we think about the the bp oil spill um from 2009, is that right, Monica, about that? Yeah, 2010. 2010. You know, one of the, the, the issues that came up is that the, the group that was the regulators were also, they just moved back and forth between the oil industry, right? Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So they, they sort of were the people who were standing to profit from the regulation, who was also making the regulators. And this is a problem when, you know, you have the fox in the hen house or however you want to describe it. Um, so I think that's one of the big problems um, that we see. I think related to that is the way that historically uh, both industry and um, our governments have, have worked together to uh, divide people um, you know, divide classes, right? And to start to think about them in terms of racial categories. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, one of our former presidents, Herbert Hoover, before he was a president, before he was a politician, he was known as a mining engineer. And what he was, his specialty was human resources. And what he, what he specialized in was that he knew how to get, supposedly, the exact right mix of Italians and Germans and Irish and African Americans and Chinese, and how to get them all into the mine and then play them off against one another and basically say, hey, you need to work harder. You're not going to let those Irish outwork you. And then if the Irish and the Italians kind of got together and said, hey, this, these conditions are bad, we'll say, well, if, if you guys don't do what I tell you to, then we've got a whole lot of you know, African-Americans out here who can come down and work. So this was sort of the, the sort of systemic way that, that they were able to divide people you know, over and over again um, throughout history. So to that's sort of a long-winded uh, answer of saying, you know, that we have all these sort of forces acting together um, and our, our economic systems and our government systems are so intertwined, it's hard to just point the finger at just one of them. 
I see. Um, and I know we've all mentioned different examples, specifically from the past. Or, but how can we see this? Are, are there any examples you can give from even today of just things of, and of course, maybe not to that extreme of um, different, you know, individuals of different ethnicities coming together and being put up against each other. But is this shown today and prevalent today in a few examples that um, we can mention? Dr. Barr, why don't you go on that one? Yours is very contemporary. <laughs> I mean, I was just like, I mean, where do you start? Um, you know, I, I think it's interesting, right? You know, so, and Teresa is also working on kind of issues around climate change and, and race and inequality, um, precisely because, you know, we continue to see this pattern of, um, you know, what in Professor Gakowski works is thinking about, you know, these communities that are in the path of least resistance, but we also see this kind of reproduced in the communities that are most vulnerable to climate change, right? And these have everything to do with history and with the ways, you know, our governmental organizations have operated in the ways ideas about racial difference. You know, Professor Harrison's example of it being more explicit, you know, back in the early 20th century, now kind of recapitulates itself in ways that are not so explicitly in the language of race, yet we continue to see the way certain communities are, are literally valued more than others, right? Um, I mean, it, it goes even back to, well, not back to, but goes to the, this current political moment, right, where we're talking about, okay, Black Lives Matter as this kind of broader social movement to, to make a point that, like, didn't we already get there already as a society to kind of understand something about the value of, of human life, but clearly we haven't. And, you know, contemporary environmental injustice issues, you know, we see them in every new kind of environmental issue, down to, you know, my work and Teresa's work on climate change, to questions around, um, you know, sustainable urbanism, right, which I know several of you also kind of teach about and think about in your own work down to even how we're regulating things like oil companies still to this day. I mean, BP might seem like a long time ago, a decade ago, you know, it seems like the distant past, but, you know, a lot of those practices still haven't changed, right? And we still have, you know, the oil and gas industry is a very powerful political lobby that does continue to put profits over people. And that's why we see indigenous communities, you know, in the upper Midwest, protesting against the laying of, of oil and gas pipelines through their land. So, you know, it's, it's, I think about the ways, especially teaching, you know, these topics, which I think at least those of us who have been teaching on various issues around environmental justice probably have the same experience where it's, it's almost like you're teaching historic case studies or you're talking about, you know, toxic pollution in communities in the 1980s or in the 1990s. But you can also go to the newspaper today and pull out an example that directly ties to that history. And, and for me, you know, with thinking about climate change, specifically in the Gulf Coast, it's like, you know, I, I happen to be teaching about Hurricane Katrina this week. And there just so happens to be, you know, a hurricane coming through. And it's like everyone is holding their breath, right, for the kind of like, oh, is this going to be another a repeat of kind of what we saw before, right? And, um, you know, and, and that's kind of a long answer to, to saying like, yes, like these things continue. And I think we have a lot of shortcomings as a society, right, in terms of, of how we address environmental injustice in our legal systems and governing systems, but also just even in our conversations. I mean, it starts in these spaces, like in universities, in classrooms, where we even 
you know, have that conversation of like, well, what is environmental injustice? And I didn't, I didn't think the history of kind of racial inequality and class inequality in this country had anything to do with sustainability. So, um, but others should chime in here too um, about their work. I don't know, Teresa, you want to say something? I know you've been working on these issues as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that like kind of what we see today, you know, in this specific moment, you have so many desires for what like the land should be playing out at one at one time. I think that that happens in a lot of different places. And in my work with looking at the coastline of South Carolina in the context of climate change, there are clearly like multiple desires of of what the coastline should be looking like. Like, should the coastline be a tourism spot? Should the coastline, you know, there have been assertions from local indigenous tribes in like Charleston to reclaim their land. Like whose whose land is it and, and who gets to manifest on that land and how, I think are all questions of like environmental justice, even though they don't necessarily always come down to, to that. Um, and so I think that like, it's, it, it's one of those things that can be hard to talk about because like, I think once you get into it, it's like seems so like rampant the way that these patterns like replicate themselves. Like I've even been thinking, you know, in this past semester of like how how universities are spaces of like public health concern, you know, in, in the way that like reopening or not reopening a university has huge ramifications for the public health of the staff of, you know, the all the people that work there, but also the community. And those also play out along racial and class-based lines. Um, and so it's like, it's one of these things where it's like, unfortunately, there are a lot of examples that you can pull from. Um, but yeah, yeah, someone and, else can help. And to that point, um, can you speak a little bit on the importance of diversity and inclusivity within environmental justice. I know you mentioned exactly, for example, whose land is it or who is the determining factor, the end all be all to say that this is exactly what this land is supposed to be utilized for. And so what is the important aspect or how far um, to an extent can diversity and inclusivity really go when it comes to this topic? Uh, can I, or Teresa, do you want, Teresa, you go ahead. Um, well, I, was, I mean, it kind of makes me think of like, I think another issue connected to environmental justice or injustice is also kind of like the, the way that the environmental field has kind of like segregated those spaces of like environmental justice is the only space where oftentimes like black voices are included in the environmental field or indigenous voices are included in, in like mainstream environmentalism. And so I think like you're exactly right in asking that question that like the inclusion of these voices in the bigger picture of environmentalism and of the way we like negotiate spaces is, is missing and is necessary. And I know Dr. Harrison, you had something to say as well. I didn't want to take away. No, no, no. And I think Mackenzie was getting ready to say something. So Mackenzie, you, you go ahead, please. 
Yeah, I was going to say, Teresa, that was like a really good point. I think when we were talking about like the path of least resistance and how um, oftentimes we find problems within environmentalism being placed in places that there's they know that it can happen and, and it can be cost effective. I think bringing diversity and inclusion into every conversation stops that path of least resistance because there shouldn't be a path of least resistance when it comes to environmentalism because it's all of our health. It's all of our children's health. It is how we build our cities. It's how we build our small towns. It's how we feed America. So um, having diversity and inclusion is so important because it can help stop that path of least resistance because there really just shouldn't be one. And then overall, I just wanted to ask everyone, um, how does racism, white privilege, and even white supremacy relate to environmental issues? I know that we've had a few examples, but how are they directly correlated and how do they relate or even amplify one or the other? Heavy conversation, <laughs> heavy questions, but. Uh, so I can, as the one of the white men, um, I can, I can start. Um, you know, I, I think about a couple of things. Um, one, I mean, I could maybe talk about a little bit about my research, right, which, which looked uh, at the way that basically um, racism was, was directly uh, built into the way that most of the southeastern United States got electricity. Basically, the, the lines, the direction that the electricity lines spread over time was directly um, guided in many cases by by race, right? And so that's uh, uh, you know that that only occurs in a in a system that's sort of governed by kind of white supremacy, right? That white supremacy is the defining um, factor. Um, but I also just want to mention that you know if we look at our our um, systems of higher education, right, um, and Who's, who's in our graduate programs, who the faculty are. Um, it's a, this is, you know, the outcome of systems of, of, of white supremacy, right? For, you know, 300, 400 years, right? It's, it's, um, that's the reason that, you know, that many of our faculty look the way that they do. That's the reason that many of the people who are concerned about the environment um, look the way that they do. Um, and it's not because of a lack of interest, right, on behalf of other people. Uh, and just sort of related to that, I, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, I, one of the things that sometimes I, I think a lot of people slip into is thinking about who benefits from diversity and inclusion and thinking that it's the diverse, right, people who are actually benefiting. But that's not the case. <laughs> it's everybody else. And, and I mean, I see myself as a prime beneficiary of it. I was incredibly fortunate to go to a graduate program where out of the group of students that came in my year, there was two white men, right, out of about 12 students. And I mean, that doesn't happen very many places in very many geography programs. And, and it's been probably the most formative thing for my, my professional career, uh, was that right and um so i mean if there was any beneficiary out of that i mean i you know i don't think i contributed very much to other people but i certainly benefited a lot from the people who are who are around me so i just wanted to add that as well 
and forth. And I definitely cannot believe that you did not contribute to everyone else in their um, knowledge. I definitely believe that you contributed. But overall, I have one more question. I would love to get um, everyone's input on this question. I know that we've talked about a lot of topics, history, and even the importance of um, making this topic more amplified, not just to individuals within um, history, geography, and even just having a natural passion for sustainability, but that it is the duty of every individual to have um, some type of knowledge and be aware and passionate and advocating for environmental justice. And so as students, as well as just a personal individual level, how can we do our best job in order to amplify environmental justice over injustice? And so whether that goes to small things, such as recycling to even um, using your civic duty um, in voting. And so how, what are some few things that we can do in order to um, tackle this problem? Sorry, I just had to shoo a, uh, a child out of my room who was dressed as a taco. So <laughs> Halloween is going on outside. Uh, I can, I'll start us off. I do think it's a, um... I think there's a difference, right, between kind of where you're at, like in your life and in society, right, to, to bring any of these things to light. Um, and I'll just speak from my kind of recent position of, of being a faculty member, right, and, and actually trying to, to work within this institutional space, right, that hasn't historically um, made the voices and experiences of people of color the center of of what we teach, of the ideas that we share, um, is part of, of how these, these broader systems and you know cultural patterns really, right? I mean, it's not just like the man and the government, right? I mean, there, it's, it's subtler than that, right? Even when we talk about white supremacy, right? How does this, how does this idea of, of valuing certain lives over others because of this idea of race take on so much power and materialize in so many palpable ways? Um, so for me, you know, from working in the space of, of the university means pushing not just students. I mean, in some ways, like what you do in your classroom as a faculty member is the easiest thing to do, right? You know, because you're the one designing the syllabus. So you get to make choices about who you teach, right? And they are choices, right? There's a lot of different people we can teach, you know, so it takes time and effort to teach the, the, the anti-canon, if you will, right? There's been a lot of conversation in many fields, I think, uh, in academia lately about who we're citing and who we're teaching and why and what that does. So that's certainly a first step within the kind of spaces I think we have as faculty um, to, to critically reflect on, you know, again, whose ideas and, and thus in turn, whose values are we perpetuating kind of forward into the future. And then there's also, you know, a lot of this energy around how do we literally kind of change, um, you know, the demographics of who's, of who's here, right? And, you know, being, you know, for me, it's really interesting to be in one department that is um, incredibly white, right? Um, on an already kind of predominantly white campus in many ways um, that's trying to do this work and then to be in another department where, you know, we have just a, a variety of faculty members from different backgrounds, right, that are, you know, 
like myself, a lot of us are kind of mixed, right? Kind of children of, of immigrants and people from America and people from other parts of the world, you know, where I'm like, wow, this is, this is unique, you know, but, but part of this is like, okay, how do we look around and ask ourselves who's in the room, whose voices are here? And as, you know, to Professor Harrison's point, right, it's, it's not just about providing those opportunities for people, but it certainly, certainly it's right. Acknowledging that there are real barriers there, that privilege is a real thing, you know, but, but also kind of recognizing that when we bring those people into the room, all of a sudden we're changing the nature of what we do and the ideas we share and the possibilities of how we can imagine a world otherwise, right? Where we don't, where we can talk about, you know, environmental injustice was this big problem in the 20th century, but we figured it out, right? Um, as opposed to having this conversation that we're having now, which is, yeah, it continues in all these different ways. Um, so, you know, I'll just say that from, from where I'm sitting, but I'd be curious what others um, think from their positions. Um, I can touch on that too in, in relation to the kind of the recipient of that. So, I mean, as a student of Dr. Barr's in the environmental justice and racism class, I think that's been um, so inspiring for um, me personally too, who comes from an environmental studies background to for the first time really being in a very diverse classroom, honestly, like, and it's kind of like, it's made me realize too that there is a growing, and it was always been there too, that the call for these types of classes that, that touch on intersectionality between class and race and continuing to amplify that student voice for these types of courses. Um, I recently was in a um, meeting with the Vice President Julian Williams for Diversity and Inclusion. Um, I also work with an, with an academics committee in student government. And this is something we're trying to tackle and how through higher education, we can be promoting diversity and inclusion. And he noted, you know, um, you know, especially with the arts and sciences promoting this justice theme semester and all of the co-curricular events, this is a way of demonstrating that there is on both sides, student and faculty support for these types of classes that at least, you know, have this um, this curriculum that's devoted to this uh, to justice, and also that the faculty members are willing to kind of address, um, you know, what's I think a, a circulating topic of decolonizing the curriculum in a way. And I think that's a lot of um, really interesting uh, momentum that's growing on the topic. And as a student, I think we um, can advocate for things of that sort, and we can, you know, be a part of um, that growing movement. I want to give everyone a chance, but just to that point, because I I relate to that so much, um, not even just the diverse curriculum and how that can make the class that much better or more beneficial, but even just representation within the class. Um, I have the opportunity to transfer into honors um, after my freshman year of college. And so one, coming to a predominantly white institution, knowing that I am going to be a part of the marginalized community, but I did not know such an extreme transition, it would be then to move into honors. And so after moving into honors, I could just feel a difference within uh, my classes. When I look around, not many people look no, not any people look like me. Um, and even just having to relate, trying so hard to connect with different individuals, and then the curriculum being enhanced um, as it was, it was honestly difficult for me at the beginning. And so it really took me reaching out. And honestly, I don't, I don't ever mention this often, um, but the first initial reason why I had an African-American studies minor 
was to just get some type of diverse aspect within my curriculum. I just could not manage having a set curriculum with the same, same old, same old. And so I started by just wanting to be around different people. And then from that and from the diverse curriculum, from the amazing professors, grew a passion for African-American studies and ended up loving it. So I definitely understand and um, can relate, Claire, to um, the sentiment um, that you mentioned, as well as Dr. Barr, really appreciate even hearing your perspective on the other side as a professor and understanding the importance of representation and diverse curriculum as well. But I also would like to hear more um, um, responses or even just ways that we can be on the lookout in order to um, be able to combat this issue or just even amplify environmental justice within the classroom or even outside the classroom. Yeah, I can go. So um, my, I guess, thing I could harp on forever is that I love being in a common environment right now because it is so much focused on ideas and conversations and learning. And so I think um, just for any, any kind of like advice for anyone is to just continue to learn after college, to pay attention to science, to talk to people that don't look like you in like a different situation, go to a different community, go to a different state and just continue to expand and learn um, and to like, educate yourself to be able to um, speak up for yourself in terms of environmentalism and health, but also to be able to speak up for people in your community that may not have access to the same resources as you. Um, and to just be a really good, not just not a bystander in terms of um, what can happen to you in terms of environmental injustice. And it starts with like Hannah, with you, like I literally texted you and just said, Hey, would you be interested in talking about this topic during our campus sustainability week? And you're like, yeah, let's do it. Like it was literally, we decided that to do this in 30 seconds. Like it's having people like you that are so willing to help share this topic and to help talk about it. Um, that really just helps spread knowledge all around. I think that's probably the most important thing. Yeah. Um, I think that kind of like outside of the academic space, one of the ways that I've been able to like really expand my knowledge has been through social media um, in terms of like learning about environmental justice, learning about like what, like what are issues that are happening right now. And I think that it, there are sometimes problems with that in that you can be like, okay, this is happening over here. Like this is happening, you know, like when I was an undergrad, like Dakota Access Pipeline was happening and that was big on social media, but it was happening over away from us when at the same time there was like a pipeline being built in my own, like the town that I was going to school in. So it's like, I think social media can give you a sense of like kind of being separated from things. Um, but I also think that there are like some really amazing resources and people like doing, doing the work if you're willing to like put in like some kind of searches to see like who, who, what, where. Um, so yeah, that for me has been a big way that I've kind of outside of the academic space, kept my ear to the ground in different ways. All right. So if, oh. Well, I was, I was going to ask, tell Andrew, he could go ahead if he wanted, <laughs> or if he doesn't have anything to say, I, I, I'll go ahead, Andrew. Oh, uh, yeah, I'll just add um, a couple of things. Um, I wholeheartedly agree with um, 
uh, Dr. Barra's point about trying to diversify our universities and all universities curricula as much as possible. I, this isn't an area of study or a topic that is normally int um, taught, I think, um, even in many, like where I went to school, like I didn't, I'd never heard of environmental justice or environmental racism before. So all of you are very, I think, fortunate to be able to attend USC now where it is, there is a conversation being generated around this issue. Um, I think also, as many of you said too, the importance of building awareness, um, faculty members, I think, can contribute to this more and more by um, incorporating an environmental justice kind of perspective into the curricula and the kind of teaching that they do. Um, as uh, Dr. Harrison pointed out, white supremacy, environmental racism, these are things that, you know, kind of saturate still our day-to-day -day lives, um, even in like energy grids and infrastructure, right? That can be framed as an environmental justice issue, environmental justice topic. It's a very kind of interdisciplinary area that touches on kind of all aspects of the built environment, right? Transportation networks, for example. Um, so not just like pollution and uh, um, toxic waste sites, the things we kind of normally conventionally associate with environmental justice. It's a very kind of broad spectrum of things, different kinds of um, infrastructures that we take for granted that have these kind of racist sort of geographic legacies behind them. Um, and that's, something that I think, you know, once you have an awareness of, um, you can begin to kind of better, better understand and kind of better appreciate how um, that shapes your own day-to-day -day life and how you can address it and, and challenge it and confront it. Um, so I think, I think the, what you guys are doing here especially is very important, building, building that awareness is an important first step. Um, so that's all I wanted to add. I'll say one thing very quickly. And, and Hannah, you said it. Number one is vote, right? But then after you vote, make sure you hold their their feet to the fire, right? Find that issue, get that that's important to you, get educated on it. And especially at the local level, get involved, pound these people with emails, with phone calls, with tweets, whatever works. Um, and you'll have much more influence than than you can expect if you really work at it consistently and work at it very hard. I believe that was a perfect ending. And so from this, I initially got um, Build Your Wellness by um, expanding um, your knowledge, researching, doing your own research, whether that's through social media or even Google, the internet and other um, resources here on campus, um, but also doing your due diligence to not be a bystander and doing your um, civic duty even outside of the classroom. So not being a bystander, making sure that you're um, allowing everyone's voice that's around you to be heard. And if you're at a table that you see some individuals' voices are being discriminated or lessened, then making sure that you speak up in order for their voice to be heard as well. Um, but also, again, 
November 3rd um, is coming up. And so always vote, as well as making sure that you um, are advocating even afterwards um, those passions or interests that you had and the reasons why you voted for a certain candidate. But with that, I want to thank you guys so, so much for teaching me, first of all, uh, more about this topic. I feel like I now have some homework to do and that I need to start researching in order to um, build my knowledge base about environmental injustice so that I can do my part. But thank you all so much. And I hope that everyone who watched live enjoyed this episode and it will be live streamed on all um, platforms, Apple, Spotify, you name it, Google Play um, in a few weeks. And so thank you so much. And I hope you guys have a great rest of your night. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you.